Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah 46. For 45 chapters, we have considered God's warnings and the exercise of God's judgment and mercy upon His people, the nation of Judah. These who are the chosen people of the living God had faced decades of warnings and chastening that culminated in the shame and despair of the destruction of their city and their temple because of their rebellion against the Lord who had both purchased and redeemed them. Throughout this series, however, we have always been careful to observe God's constant call for repentance, God's constant draw of His people seeking them back to Himself, that these warnings of judgment always came with overtures of mercy if only they would receive it. Even after the judgment is concerned, God's mind turned immediately toward repentance and mercy. This theme in and of itself does not necessarily change this evening, but the context changes dramatically from this point on in the book of Jeremiah. There's not that many chapters left. We're on chapter 46. Uh, we, there's only 52 chapters. But the, the, the context changes dramatically. To this point, God has spoken exclusively to Judah and to those in Judah. We've had some chapters to uh, Jeremiah. We've had some, some, some to Baruch, like we studied last week. But here we find this, uh, this dramatic shift from what God says to Judah, what God says to Israel but now to the Gentile world. And it answers a question which perhaps uh, would come up in our hearts as it did in many of the prophets' hearts. Lord, all, you, you say all of these things in judgment for your people, but what about the Gentile nations surrounding Israel? What about the unbelievers surrounding Israel? You're judging your people so harshly, but what about them? We read such things not just in the Old Testament but in the New. Perhaps we think of last week as we partook together in the Lord's table and we read in 1 Corinthians where God is warning about taking the Lord's name in vain effectively by, by blaspheming the Lord, by not discerning Jesus Christ in the Lord's table observance. And for that reason, there were some among them that were, were sick and some even slept, the Bible says. Some even died. And we might look at that and say, well, Lord, there are people that are blaspheming your name every day on the outside of this building. And yet, there are people in 1 Corinthians 11 who were at least a part of that church. And they were under this great suffering. As I said, the prophets had the same struggle. How is it that God can bring such judgment upon Judah while much more wicked, quote-unquote, nations around them live in relative peace? How even could God use a wicked nation like Babylon to judge His people, prospering Babylon at the expense of Judah? Now, the whole counsel of God answers these questions. It is experienced in the histories, taught in the Psalms, reflected in the prophets. And in essence, it boils down to this, and we'll talk about this in our application. God cares too much about His people to allow them to persist in sin. God loves you too much to allow you to persist in sin. God is too jealous over that which is His 
to yield them to another. I was talking to someone about our message this morning as we talked a little bit about divorce and remarriage and how that related to uh, the, the man, the bishop, and that idea of being the husband of one wife. And one of the men came up to me afterwards and he was talking about uh, the nature of marriage as a picture of Christ and how jealous Christ is over his church, how, how exclusive the church is to Christ and Christ is to the church, right? And uh, he was bringing that up. And there's that idea here. Simultaneously, God calls to these unbelievers to come unto him for healing and for mercy, all while being long-suffering unto them. But just as it is with his people, so too it is with those who oppose him, that there is coming a day when God's patience must give way to judgment, where God's long-suffering must give way to his wrath. The difference being that as God calls out time and time and time again to Israel, There's always that call for mercy. But as we'll see with at least Egypt this evening, on the day where God speaks of Egypt's judgment, there's no mention of a remnant. There's only mention of destruction. No hint of restraint. So we get into the text, and we're going to consider two nations. As you see, we're trying to cover two chapters this evening. We're going to talk about Egypt, and we're going to talk about Philistia. This evening, and the Bible says in Philippians, uh, in Jeremiah, excuse me, chapter forty-six, verses one and two, the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Gentiles, against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah king of Judah. So we start once again by going back in time. We're back in time again, uh, just like we were last week, and we're actually in the same year this week as we were last week. Uh, We consider the word of the Lord, which Jeremiah speaks, this time against the Gentiles, and notice our timetable. It was after Nebuchadnezzar had come against Egypt and their king, Pharaoh in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of of Josiah. Well, that calls us back to our trusty chart to understand where we are in relation to other things here. Jehoiakim was the second of Josiah's three sons to rule. He reigned 11 years, and the fourth year of his reign was, as we talked about last week, a very important year. He began reign, his reign in 609, and the fourth year of his reign was 605 B.C., if that sounds familiar, because that is one of three very important dates as it relates to the three deportations. Last time I tried to go through the three dates of those deportations, it did not go very well, but it was 605, 597, and 586 B.C. I got myself terribly confused a few weeks ago with those. I actually had to put a little thing on YouTube saying, you know, these are the right dates because it was very, very confusing for all involved. But 605 was the first deportation, then 597 was the second, and 586 was the third. So this is the first, this is the year of the first deportation. This is a big year in Jeremiah. This is the year that Jeremiah, remember, wrote those words of God in a book, and Baruch took those words and read it, just like we talked about last week. And Jehoiakim cut up the words and threw it into the fire. This is the year that we studied last week where God gave that message to Baruch, reminding him that he had the right to do what he was doing. And of course, this is the year of the the great deportation. So it was an important year for Israel. It was also a very important year for Babylon, naturally, and for Egypt. The event that is being spoken of in verses 1 and 2 
of which Jeremiah writes when we speak of Babylon smiting Egypt by the river Euphrates in Carchemish is a famous battle known to history simply as the Battle of Carchemish. History agrees this battle took place in the year 605. Of course, some people say 606, some people say 604. But it was in this time period, just as the Bible says, the armies of Egypt had allied themselves with the remnants of the Assyrian Empire, which was almost completely dissolved by this point. But they had allied themselves with the remnants of the Assyrian Empire to stand against a, a, confederate, uh, a, a confederate attack force of Babylon, Media, Persia, and the Scythians. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that we read about this battle of Carchemish. It's the only time we read about the battle proper. But there's another time that we read about that, that leads right into this battle, where we see um, the, the armies of Pharaoh passing through, going from Egypt up to the region of Syria in order to fight this battle. And we find that earlier in the book during the days of Josiah. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 20 through 25. And there the Bible says this. The Bible says, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple. So there was a whole chapter here about Josiah doing these great things, having a, a Passover and all of these things that he did uh, uh, for the Lord, right? And it says, um, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho king of Egypt came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him, came out to fight against him. But he, that would be Necho, sent ambassadors to him, that would be Josiah, saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearken not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot at King Josiah and the king said to his servants, have me away for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had and they brought him to Jerusalem and he died and was buried in one of the sepulchres of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah. And all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah in their lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. So we have here an amazing account leading up to Josiah's untimely death. And it was devastating for Israel that Josiah died. It was devastating spiritually. He was in the midst of this great revival when he died. And of course, knowing what we know about his sons, things did not go well in the days of Josiah's sons. So Pharaoh Necho is coming up out of Egypt and he is on his way to Carchemish by the river Euphrates to fight. That is his purpose. And Josiah comes out against him. Josiah comes out to oppose the Pharaoh going through his land. And in an amazing set of circumstances, Pharaoh sends ambassadors and says, look, Josiah, I have no, no beef with you. I don't want to fight you. God has told me to do this. I'm trying to get up there in haste because this is what God has told me to do. I'm going to the north. I'm going to Carchemish. I, have, I want nothing to do with you. Don't oppose me. You don't need to die for this. If you oppose me, you're, you're opposing God. You don't need to die for this. Josiah ignores these warnings. He disguises himself. He fights against Egypt 
and he dies. And this, of course, begins the reign of Jehoahaz. This was in 609. And Jehoahaz only lasted three months. And then, of course, Jeho- Je- Jehoiakim picked up from there. And we are now in his fourth year as Jeremiah is writing these words. So some four years later, the Battle of Carchemish is finally decided. Can you imagine four years <laughs> between when he starts his way up and when this campaign finally ends? Four years, this battle is decided, and Pharaoh, along with his allies, are soundly defeated by Babylon, and they limp back to Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar's strength is, is now uh, it, it is, it is, um, locked in in the region, and of course, Judah is next on the list. And we know that Judah is next on the list because this is the year that that first deportation takes place. That's the deportation where Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are taken to Babylon. So Pharaoh has just been handed this defeat. He understands full well that he can't stand against Babylon in the region. And it is within this context, it is at this time that Jeremiah writes these words to the nation of Egypt. So he is writing in that year during this time of the uh, defeat of Egypt at the battle of Carchemish. Verses 3 through 8, the Bible says, Order ye the buckler and shield, and draw near to battle. Harness the horses, and get up, ye horsemen, and stand forth with your helmets. Furbish the spears, and put on the brigadines. Wherefore have I seen them dismayed, and turned away back? And their mighty ones are beaten down, and and are fled apace, and look not back. For fear was round about, saith the Lord. Let not the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They shall stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this that cometh up as a flood, whose waters are moved as the rivers? Egypt riseth up like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. And he saith, I will go up and will cover the earth. I will destroy the city and the inhabitants thereof. So Jeremiah begins by writing these words of war, and he's picturing here presumably the actual spirit of of Egypt as they went toward this battle of Carchemish. Order the buckler, it's like a small shield, and then the shield itself, a larger shield, uh, to draw near to battle. Harness the horses, standing with their helmets, standing with their spears, putting on their armor. That's what the brigadines are, furnishing the brigadines. That's their armor, putting on the brigadines. So they put on their armor. They're standing with their helmets and their spears. They're ready for war. And then in verse 5, the Lord asks a question. Why do I see them dismayed and turning away? They've gone to war. Why are they turning back sorrowful? The answer? Well, because their mighty ones were beaten down and they are fled. This is exactly what history records, that the armies of Egypt were beaten down, that they fled, that Babylon, according to Babylon's writings, which are probably somewhat propagandistic as most winners' writings are, uh, they chased them all down and destroyed them all. Uh, I think that that's, uh, history seems to bear out that that's, that's um, uh, hyper, hyperbolic. But uh, they were soundly defeated. And notice what the Lord says in verse 6. Let not the swift flee away. Let not the mighty man escape. So this does reflect that, that there was a great slaughter, right? And that they were not able to escape. They were not able to just retreat. Babylon did not stop when the Egypt, Egypt started retreating. They chased them down. And that is where we start seeing this glimmer of judgment. God says here, this is judgment. He says, I am the one who overthrew you by the river Euphrates. Who is it, the Lord asks, that comes up as a flood? 
and whose waters are moving. The idea here reflects Pharaoh's mindset heading into this battle of Carchemish. You can even somewhat see it in that passage we read in 2 Chronicles 35 where Pharaoh says, look, you don't have to die, Josiah. Don't come against me. Uh, the, the king, the, the Pharaoh, was insistent that he was on a commission. He was sure that he had God's favor and he was on a mission to spread over the land like waters. So Pharaoh says, I will go up, I will cover the earth, I will destroy the city. And that's what we read there in verse 8. As Egypt riseth up like the floods, and its waters are moved like the rivers, but it was not to be so. For indeed the judgment of God was upon him. And remember this, because as we just said, when Pharaoh was headed up to Carchemish, he told Josiah that he was on a commission from God. And 2 Chronicles 35 seems to at least imply, uh, we don't know if it's all quote, if it's all Pharaoh saying this, that's one thing, but it almost seems as though 2 Chronicles acknowledges that God was bringing him up there. And if indeed that was the case, by God's own testimony, here in Jeremiah, God was not leading him up there to be like a flood of waters to overcome everyone and defeat the city. God was leading him up there to be judged, which is very, uh, uh, quite possible. So we continue in verses 9 through 12. Come up, ye horses, and rage, ye chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans that handle the shield and the Lydians that, that, uh, excuse me, that handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the, the sword shall devour, and it shall be, uh, be satiate, and make drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up into Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain shalt thou use many medicines, for thou shalt not be cured. The nations have heard of thy shame, and thy cry hath filled the land. For the mighty man hath stumbled against the mighty, and they are fallen both together. So God says, the horses come up and rage. He says, let the, let the horses come. Let them rage. Let the Ethiopians come. Let the Libyans come with their shields. Let the Lydians come with their bows. Uh, these are African nations and most likely nations who uh, were, they're all surrounding Egypt. Most likely they were nations who had lent the skills of their armies, either by treaty or by force, uh, to the Pharaoh for his campaign. And God says, let them all come because on this day, this is the day of the Lord's vengeance. This is the day of judgment. It's a day when God will begin to avenge himself on the nation of Egypt for their evils. And it began at Carchemish. So God exhorts the daughter of Egypt. He says to the daughters of Egypt, go up to Gilead for a balm. Gilead was uh, a place throughout the scriptures. We see it known throughout the scriptures as a center of healing. Uh, there was a healing balm apparently that grew in the Jordan Valley that was harvested among Gilead and turned into this healing balm that was used and well known throughout the region. But God says it will be no help to you. No medicine will be of help to you because there's no cure for God's judgment. Once the judgment has begun, there is no balm that can pacify it. So God says, the nations have heard of the shame of their defeat. The cry of Egypt has now filled the land. The mighty men have fallen before those that are more mighty than they. And here's the worst part. 
this chapter is telling Pharaoh, by the way, this is only the beginning. It's only the beginning. God then turns his attention to Nebuchadnezzar, not only defeating their army, but overtaking their homeland. And this is what Jeremiah prophesies is going to happen next. He says, you've lost in Carchemish to this, to this king, Nebuchadnezzar. There's coming a day when he will sweep over Egypt and he will take over Egypt. Now, we already know this because in the days of Jeremiah, when they fled after in 586, 585 BC, they fled down to Egypt. God says, this land, Egypt, is going to be destroyed. Well, this, that was not the first prophecy of that. Way back in 605, Jeremiah told the king of Egypt that the nation would be destroyed. And we begin reading that in verses 13 through 17. So the Bible says, The word that the Lord spake to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, should come and smite the land of Egypt. Declare ye in Egypt, and publish in Migdal, and publish in Noph, and in Tophanes. Say ye, stand fast and prepare thee, for the sword shall devour round about thee. Why are thy valiant men swept away? They stood not, because the Lord did drive them. He made many to fall. Yea, one fell upon another, and they say, Arise, and let us go again to our own people and to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. They did cry there. Pharaoh the king of Egypt is but a noise. He hath passed the time appointed. Jeremiah now speaks in the name of the Lord of God's intention to overthrow the nation of Egypt with this man, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. He tells the nation to prepare themselves because the sword is coming to destroy everything that is around them. Jeremiah, then he almost takes here a, a, a tone of lamentation as he considers this, saying that Pharaoh had made many others to fall before him, many to flee back to the safety of their own homeland as he was a mighty king. And now those who had fled to their homelands are looking at what Babylon is about to do to Egypt and they are laughing. And they are saying, that king, that Pharaoh Necho, he's but a noise. In other words, he's all talk. He's got nothing but wind to blow. He has no power behind his words. He is, he's bluffing. He, he's impotent. They say he's but a noise because he has passed the time appointed. We're not quite sure exactly what that means, except that it seems likely that the idea is simply that Pharaoh's time has come. He's passed the time appointed. Pharaoh's time has come. We see this in a small level. If you've ever followed any uh, uh, sports teams and there's a dynasty, uh, people start to dislike a team that has a dynasty, right? Just because it's a dynasty and that team's winning and other teams are losing. But there always comes a point where Every team's time comes, right? Where they finally don't have enough uh, ability to win anymore and their time has come. Now it's their turn to do the losing. And that's the spirit of this. The, the idea is he's passed the time appointed. It is Pharaoh's. They, they have conquered for years. They, they have swept over other nations. They've caused other people to have to flee to their homeland. They have been strong. They have been valiant. And now their time has come. Now they are past the time Appointed. Now the conqueror will be conquered himself. Continuing in verses 18 and 20. As I live, saith the king. I love this. This is God speaking. As I live, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Surely as Tabor is among the mountains, and as Carmel by the sea, 
so shall he, Nebuchadnezzar, come. O thou daughter dwelling in Egypt, furnish thyself to go into captivity, for Noph shall be wasted and desolate without an inhabitant. Egypt is like a very fair heifer, but destruction cometh. It cometh out of the north. God subtly reminds his readers what is going on here in verse 18. This is not the only time in God's writings to the Gentiles that you're going to see this. God addresses himself as the king. He says, as I live, saith the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. God is writing to the king of Egypt here. This man who had exalted himself. This man who said, I will be like the waters and I will pour over all of the earth. This man who had caused many to flee to their own home countries. And so God is careful to remind him in the middle of this prophecy, by the way, Pharaoh Necho, I'm the king of kings. You cannot stand against me. You cannot oppose me. You're a king. I'm the king. God says, as surely as Carmel is by the sea, Carmel is by the sea, as surely as Tabor is in the mountains, Tabor is in the mountains, surely Babylon is going to come from the north and he is going to take them into captivity. So God says, daughters of Egypt, don't go up and find the healing bomb because no medicines are going to help. But you can do this, he says. You can prepare yourself for captivity because it's coming. And then he likens Egypt to a very fair heifer, a healthy young cow whose days are numbered because destruction is coming. And God specifies that it will come from the north, that being Babylon. Verses 21 through 26. Also that her hired men are in the midst of her like fatted bullocks, for they also are turned back and they are fled away together. They did not stand because the day of their calamity was come upon them and the time of their visitation. Do you see how inevitable the judgment is? It doesn't say they did not stand because they were weak or because the other army was better. They did not stand because the king of kings, it was, it was, it was time. Because the king of kings ordained that it was time and now it's time. This is the day of their vegetation. This is their judgment. Their judgment is coming. And, and they, there's no opposition to that. Verse 22. The voice thereof shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes as hewers of wood. They shall cut down her forest, saith the Lord, though it cannot be searched, because they are more than the grasshoppers and are innumerable. The daughter of Egypt shall be confounded. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saith, Behold, I will punish the multitude of Noah and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh and all them that trust in him. And I will deliver them into the hand of those that seek their lives and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his servants, and afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, saith the Lord. In a final description of the nation, God uses several more animal analogies uh, to strengthen his point. God will judge the nation of Egypt. He will judge the false gods. He will judge their leaders. He will judge all of those who, who confederate with Egypt, who are trusting in Egypt as a part of their plan. And by the way, at this point, Israel was one of those. Israel was regularly within the next 12 years teaming up with Egypt to try to oppose Babylon. Remember, this was written in 605, well before that, that judgment takes place. So God says, all of those who trust in you, all of those who, who confederate with you, all of, uh, of, of your kings and your gods, I will judge you. 
Now, the final verses of this chapter, verses 27 and 28, do something interesting. Turns the attention back to Israel for a moment. We read this, But fear not thou, O my servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. We see in these two verses a tremendously strong contrast between God's dealings with Israel and God's dealings with the Gentile world. And I want you to take careful note of of how he does this. Notice that in these two verses, you don't actually see Judah. You see Jacob and Israel. And this harkens all the way back to the writings of God in Jeremiah chapter 3. Remember back in Jeremiah chapter 3 where God said that he would bring Israel and Judah back together and he would make them one nation again, that, that Jacob would be brought back into the land and Jacob would be restored using the non-covenant name of Israel in order to show the link to the 12 tribes themselves. So this is not God writing, uh, Jeremiah writing uh, the words of God in 605 and God saying, Egypt will be destroyed, but by the way, Judah, this nation that's about to have their first round of captivity, you're going to be okay. No, this is God looking well ahead. This is prophetically God looking toward the end when he says, Egypt, you and all of the nations into which I scattered the, the nation of Israel, they will be destroyed. They will come to an end. But remember, Israel, I'm going to gather you. And so there's a far-reaching look here. And we'll see this especially when we get to the, the prophecy against Babylon in Jeremiah 50 and 51. We're going to see again a transition from the near to the far. We're going to see a transition because Babylon is so central to prophetic scripture. We're going to see a transition from the immediate, the destruction of Babylon immediately, to a far afield destruction. And we might even see that as it relates to Egypt, that far afield end times element there. And, and whether we see that within Egypt, we know that that's what's happening here in verses 27 and 28. The language is unmistakable that God is appealing to the final regathering of his people, calling them Jacob, speaking to all of Israel, even though at this point in 605 BC, the northern tribes of Israel have been in captivity for some 200 years, right? And yet he's saying, Jacob, you will be restored. Harkening, as I said, all the way back to Jeremiah 3, where God told specifically those northern ten tribes, I'm bringing you back to myself. So we see that here. We also see here that in that day when he regathers them, these words that he uses, he says, I will not make a full end, but I will correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. He would correct them in measure according to their sin, but he would not make an end of them. And we'll dwell upon that contrast in our application. But before we get there, I want to get through chapter 47 as well. Only seven verses here. And this is a prophecy to the Philistines. So we read in chapter 47. 
the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, the prophet, against the Philistines before that Pharaoh smote Gaza. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, waters rise out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood and shall overflow the land and all that is therein, the city and them that dwell therein. Then the men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl at the noise of the stamping of the hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots and the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers shall not look back to their children for feebleness of hands because of the day that cometh to spoil all the Philistines and to cut off from Tyrus and Sidon every helper that remaineth. For the Lord will spoil the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaphtar. Baldness is come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long wilt thou cut thyself? O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be ere thou be quiet? Put up thyself into thy scabbard. Rest and be still. How can it be quiet, seeing the Lord hath given a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? There hath he appointed it. This chapter takes on a far more personal form of judgment. Jeremiah writes, the text says, in the days before Pharaoh had conquered Gaza, but then he quickly speaks of the conquerors of the Philistines as coming from the north. Now, if you know even basic geography, you know that Philistia is right there by Israel and Egypt is in the south. And when we talk about conquerors from the north, especially as we talk about conquerors of the north in Jeremiah, we are generally referencing Babylon. And so there's a question as to what exactly is going on here. We don't exactly know when this was written. If we knew exactly when this was written, it might give us a little more context to understand this. If the conquerors of the north are speaking of Egypt. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, he says, before Pharaoh smote Gaza. So we know that there's a timetable given here in that Pharaoh was about to smite Gaza. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of the other destruction in this chapter is, it, it can be attributed to Egypt. Doesn't necessarily mean that. If it is all attributed to Egypt, if we attribute uh, the entire destruction of Ashkelon and of uh, Tyre and Sidon and all and Kaftor, if we if if we attribute all of that to Egypt here and not just Gaza then most likely what happened is that Jeremiah is looking toward that battle of Carchemish when Egypt is in the north. And either before, maybe before that battle, as the, the, the armies were waiting for that battle, or after that battle, after the defeat of Egypt, as they were headed back down to Egypt, they smote the Philistines. They smote Gaza. They smote Ashkelon. They smote, smote Sidon, uh, 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 Zidon and Tyre. And so that's a possibility as to how Egypt could be coming from the north. Because Egypt was up there for four years before and then just after that battle of Carchemish. It is also possible, however, that while Egypt conquered Gaza, the greater overthrow that is being looked at here, that Jeremiah gave the timetable that he made this prophecy before the Philistines smote Gaza, but that the greater overthrow of Philistia would come at the hands of Babylon at a later date. 
This is not as likely. And the reason is because even as we look at this prophecy, you notice in verse 2, uh, God said, Behold, waters rise up out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood and shall overflow the land. That links pretty closely to what we saw in chapter 46, huh? About Pharaoh saying, I will overflow like a flood. I will overflow like the waters of a flood. And Pharaoh likening himself to that himself. So it, it, the, to that end, a lot of people kind of believe that somewhere within that four-year stretch, after Israel had been defeated, after jo, uh, Josiah had been killed, but either before or after the Battle of Carchemish, Egypt found their way into the destruction of that Gaza Strip there. And then either went back up to finish the battle in Carchemish or went back down to Egypt after the fact. Either way, this message is certainly one of destruction and judgment. That there was coming a day when the Philistines, when Tyre and Sidon, would all be spoiled. And rather than God turning to Israel and assuring them of safety and mercy, we see a different interjection this time. In the last chapter, God turned to Israel and said, I will regather you. In this chapter, we see a different and a very interesting interaction. Jeremiah writes in verse 6, O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be ere thou be quiet? Put up thyself into thy scabbard, rest and be still. I don't know what all is going through Jeremiah's mind here, but it seems as though... um, Jeremiah is getting a little judgment weary at this point. He sees, he's been proclaiming judgment against Judah. He's proclaiming judgment against Egypt. We'll see in the next few chapters, he's proclaiming judgment against Ammon and against Moab. And here he's proclaiming judgment against Philistia. There's so much judgment. And Jeremiah says, O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be before you're satisfied? And notice what the Lord responds. How can it be quiet, seeing the Lord hath given it a charge? How can it be quiet as long as there's judgment to be done? The sword will be put back in its scabbard when the judgment is complete. That's an interesting thought. That is a fearful thought, is it not? That the judgment of God will continue until the job is complete. For our application this evening, I'd like to go back to those last couple of verses of chapter 46. The end of chapter 46, we read two very important verses, which not only reveal the nature of God's dealings with the nation of Israel as he calls and says that he will restore them to himself, but the deeper elements of the character of God that spans all generations. And there are three general principles mentioned in those verses that I would like us to dwell on for just a few moments. We are going to dwell on judgment this evening. And the first principle, the first element that I want us to draw out is that judgment always begins at the house of God. Second, I want us to see that judgment of those who stand in opposition to God is coming and is devastating. And third, that there is a dramatic difference between the judgment of God's people and the judgment of the unbeliever. This first point is made very clear, not only throughout the examples of God in the Old Testament, but it's explicitly stated in the New Testament. 
We go to the book of 1 Peter to see this statement in its clearest form. Peter was writing to the believers, the, the, the diaspora or the, the scattered remnant who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, the, the believing Jews. And he writes to them about the nature of suffering reproach for the name of Jesus Christ. And he warned the readers that it is far better if the will of God be so that they would suffer for doing well than for doing evil. When we suffer for doing well, we suffer in Jesus' name. We partake in his suffering. We partake in his shame. And there is a blessing there. When we suffer for doing evil, we still suffer. But the end of that road is only judgment. So Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. He says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ... Happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, that would be those who reproach us, he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. I'm stopping in the middle of a verse here, but this is intentional. We'll get back to that in a moment. Peter warns that none of us might suffer as an evildoer. He says, don't do evil and suffer as an evildoer. There's nothing about suffering as an evildoer that has any merit before the eyes of God. He says a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. He says, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And he says here at the end of this exhortation that we would be willing to suffer reproach for Christ eager to do right even if it means suffering because there's coming a day when God will judge all men and judgment will begin at the house of God or with the house of God. That judgment will begin with believers. And of course, this idea of judgment is is a fearful thing, but it's also the day where there are rewards. And so we seek to make that day of judgment a day where we have that pile of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, where when the fire of God's judgment falls upon it, we don't lose all that much, right? Relatively speaking. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. But we speak not just of that day of judgment, but as it relates to God judging His people, as it relates to God uh, distinguishing between the right and the wrong, as it relates to the chastening hand of God uh, to, to um, bring about perfection in his children, this is something that is not just at the end, right? This is something that God is doing. This is something that God is doing in us. We find in Scripture that upon this earth, God takes a very particular interest in the actions of his followers. And that God is particularly active in disciplining, chastening, growing, trying Uh, um, pruning his children. So we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience 
the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're called to lay aside the weights, to run with patience, looking unto the one who endured the cross for us. Verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Don't stop fighting. It hasn't killed you yet. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Lay aside those weights. Set them aside. Run this race with patience. Verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he of whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastening, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. God's chastening is a mark of his fatherly faithfulness and love. It goes on to say in verse 10 now, or verse 11, excuse me, of Hebrews 12. Now, no chastening for the moment seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Chastening is a grievous thing. It is a grievous thing to be tried by the Lord. It is a grievous thing to go through the fire. It is a grievous thing to uh, be corrected for our faults. Nevertheless, afterwards, that verse says, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Those who God does not chasten are not chastened because God does not have that fatherly love toward them. Now we know that God loves the whole world. For God so loved the world. So we're talking about different elements of God's love here. There is the love of God's long-suffering, whereby He calls the world unto Himself. And then there's the fatherly love. And that love is expressed only toward those who are His own. God loves all the world. But because they are not God's children, they are not positioned to be the recipients of the particular outworking of God's love that is manifest in His faithful purging and disciplining His loving hand of correction. To that end, it should not surprise us when it seems as though the judgment of the wicked is delayed and the judgment of the righteous is expedited. As we said at the beginning, God cares too much about his children to withhold chastening from them. God loves you too much. God has a particular... Those who are his, those who have come to him by grace through faith, God has a particular interest in your sanctification. And so he will take a particular interest in your perfection, in your chastening, in your trying. I give a great deal more attention to my children than I would to any other children because they aren't mine. I may want to and try to help a child, pull a child aside from time to time and say, hey son, you know, have you ever thought about... <laughs> helping them along. But my children, I'm going to take a particular interest 
in their discipline, a particular interest in their growth, a particular interest in stretching them because they are mine. I have a unique and particular relationship with them that compels me to give attention to them. And so we're at a park and a bunch of kids are doing wrong and I say to my child, stop that. And they say, well, what about all the other ones? Well, they're not my children, right? You are my child. You're the one that gets that particular attention because you are my child. Because I have a vested interest in you that I don't have in those children. But let's establish this as well. God's delayed chastening upon those who oppose him is also out of love. Not a familial love, but as I mentioned, a long-suffering love. God cares too much about his children to let them walk contrary to himself without resistance. But God is too long-suffering to lower the hammer down upon the unbeliever before his justice absolutely demands it. It is against Peter that speaks to this point in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not slack concerning his promises of judgment. God is not being negligent. God is being long-suffering, right? He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And to that end, we see a delay of the inevitable judgment of the wicked to the very last second that God's justice will allow. That every soul who is willing to be saved is saved. To this end, let us not resent the chastening hand of the Lord upon us because that chastening hand of the Lord is making us better. It is a mark. It is, it is a direct characteristic of God's love for you. It's a direct characteristic of God's love for you. Simultaneously, don't resent the long-suffering of God because that is God's mercy at play. That is God's long-suffering at play. But do remember this. Judgment must begin at the house of God. It does begin with us. But rest assured, judgment is coming to those who oppose God. And when it does come, this is our second point, it will be devastating. I took you to two passages of Scripture, both in Peter, speaking specifically of the Lord judging His people. And with each of them, I stopped short of the full context, which goes on to speak of the judgment of God upon the unbelieving world. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, Peter speaks about judgment beginning at the house of God, and then he goes on to say, and we'll read these together, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Here it is. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? That is a terrifying verse. A terrifying verse. If the righteous are scarcely saved, and that idea not being that Christ's blood is just barely sufficient, but the idea being that we, as an unclean thing, are in by the blood of Jesus Christ. And on that day of judgment, there will be the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, and we will enter into judgment, but not without loss. 
if the, and if that will be, if, if, that, if that day is so fearful, enter into salvation. Did I say judgment? We'll enter into salvation, but not through, not, not, but through judgment, right? And he'll wipe away all the tears, but the tears are going to be there. And if that is the, the fearfulness of the day for, for we who are believers, so much, so fearful is that day for us as believers that we are compelled to lay aside those weights, that we have not uh, stri- strived unto blood against sin, right? That, that keep fighting, keep striving, keep striving for the mastery. Quoted those verses in 2 Corinthians this morning about striving for the mastery. Keep doing that because there's a day of judgment and on that day, what you have done in this earth is going to matter. It's not just about whether or not you have your get out of hell free card. That day matters. That day of judgment matters. It is a day of terror that we ought to live in true fear of. Not of eternal damnation, but in the, in the judgment of God, the wrath of God upon the things which we have done in our bodies. And if that's the believer, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? If the chastening hand of the Lord in faithfulness to his children is of such that we might groan under the weight of our rebellious choices out of which God is calling us, if no chastening for the moment seemeth to be joyous but grievous, what will the full weight of God's judgment upon the unbelieving world look like? I also took you to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 a few moments ago where Peter described the long-suffering of God. But in verse 10, Peter describes the day when that long-suffering gives way to judgment, and he writes this, But the day of the Lord will come. He may be long-suffering, but it will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Peter writes of the very elements of the earth melting under the judgment of God, a time of fury and of anger, nowhere to hide. Indeed, the judgment on that day of the unbelieving world will be devastating. David wrote a very insightful psalm about this whole process. He had a lot of those. But in Psalm 2, he writes about this process of judgment. It speaks of the frustration of the righteous man seeing the wicked and their success and their prosperity. There's actually many Psalms that speak to this frustration as David is hiding in caves and he's fleeing for his life and he's got this band of uh, um, fugitives around him and he sees the wicked men prospering, right? Right? And in Psalm 2, he speaks of this frustration, but then he looks ahead toward that day of their judgment and toward the triumph of Jesus Christ, and then brings these thoughts to their natural natural conclusion. So we read this in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And so there's this idea, the heathen are raging, right? They are, they are rebelling against God. Verse four, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. 
Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are they that, that put their trust in him. So David speaks of the wicked exalting themselves against the Lord. And he says, why are the wicked getting away with this? Why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? Why do they set themselves up against God? And how can God let such a thing happen? But then he looks beyond and he says, the Lord will laugh. See, there's coming a day when the son will be given the inheritance of the nations. And on that day that the son is given the inheritance of the nations, all resistance will break before the mighty hand of God and will shatter like glass before him. To that end, David makes an exhortation at the end of the Psalms. He says, kings, be wise. Be wise. Be instructed. Serve the Lord with rejoicing and trembling while you can. Because there's coming a day of devastating judgment. We who know of this day of judgment, we who understand it from the word of the Lord, Let us do the same. Let us serve the Lord with rejoicing and trembling. Let us understand the terror of that day. Let us not just live in light of it ourselves, but let us seek to call others out of that judgment, to call them from the path of that judgment into that path of mercy. But let us also not forget that the evil man gets away with nothing. Because God sees all and knows all. Final point. First, judgment always begins at the house of God. Second, judge, the judgment of those opposed to God is coming and will be devastating. Third, remember that there is a dramatic difference between the judgment of God's people and the judgment of the unbeliever. And this is why it matters so much. You might say, well, if both are going to be judged, then what's the difference? The difference is eternal life. Right? In our perspective, the difference is eternal life. But do you notice how clear God makes the how clear he distinguishes in Jeremiah 46 between Egypt and Israel. Do you notice how all of these chapters of judgment against Israel, and yet God lays the foundation with that judgment by saying, I will regather you one day. I love you, and I am going to judge you for your sin and then bring you back to myself pure. He doesn't say that to Egypt, does he? He says, the nations into which I scatter Israel they will not. They will, they will find their end. They will find their end. God told the nation in verse 28, God told Israel in verse 28 that their judgment would be corrected in measure. That the extent of their judgment was the extent of their rebellion. That while God is, as we've said, way too faithful He loves us too much to let us go uncorrected. He is also too faithful to make a full end of his people. And so in this we are reminded perhaps of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. See, because 
there is coming a day when God will judge his people. And as we see from that exhortation in Hebrews chapter 12, that means we are to run this race with patience. And Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 31 and 32, and he says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. See, God corrects his children so that they do not fall into the same condemnation and shame that the world lives in. God corrects us because we are called to be different from the world around us, and he, he wants us to live that difference. But take note of this, believer. If you would correct yourself, if you would judge yourself, if you would live the difference, if you would come out from among them and be separate, if you would touch not the unclean thing, if you would hate even the garment spotted by the flesh, as we talked about in Jude this morning, then God does not need to chasten you. If your child corrects himself when he's done wrong, he doesn't need your correction, does he? It would be redundant for me to correct my child when they correct themselves. There are two elements to, to general discipline, right? There's the consequences of an action and then there's the chastening to bring about repentance. As a father, I don't just want to correct the action. I want to bring about repentance in my child. I want to bring about an understanding of the wrong and why it was wrong. Not just that they did wrong and now they have to get a consequence for that, but the fact that, you need, that, that my desire is to draw their heart unto a repentance and an alignment with their father. And God does that too. But you know what? If my child comes to me with a heart aligned with me and says, Daddy, I did this. I should not have done that. Please forgive me. Do you know what is already there? Repentance is already there. Now, there may still have to be a consequence for the action, the natural consequence of the action as it bore out. But I don't need to seek for repentance. I don't need to chasten unto repentance because the chastening is already... They, 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 they judge themselves. They, they came with the repentant heart already. So I don't need to seek for that repentant heart because they've got that. Now it's just a matter of does there need to be some consequence for that action? That is the idea here. If we would judge ourselves, we would not need to be judged. But when God does judge us, we're chastened of the Lord, that we would be brought back to this place of repentance. It is redundant to, to chasten a child, to bring about repentance in a child, to seek to bring about repentance in an already repentant child. And this is the difference between the way God judges the believer and the way God judges the unbeliever. The believer is purified and made a vessel unto the finer. The judgment of God in the lives of the believers is to bring about a purer vessel unto greater rewards, unto perfection, unto eternal life. But the unbeliever, when the day for him comes, when the day of judgment, when he stands before that throne, there's no mercy at that point for him. That has already passed. So let us fear God. Let us love God. Let us reach out to the lost and call them unto salvation. Let us live in light of the reality of that judgment. Let us judge ourselves lest we would be judged by the Lord and chastened of the Lord. Let us see that chastening as God's faithfulness upon us. Let us understand the distinction between the way God judges his people and the way God will judge the unbeliever one day. Let us fear God and let us fear for those who are 
headed toward that unbelieving judgment that we may see some of those souls brought to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.